0: Hey, everybody. Guess what I just realized? I was muted. Tap it, listen. (laughs) I'm Pastor Gary, yet again. I hope that all of you are doing well this morning. We've begun a conversation among (laughs) the members of the church as to both how and when we're going to begin to regather as a physical body of Christ, the church. And when we've come to a decision, we'll let everyone know. We're also looking forward to, at some point in the hopefully near future, having a church picnic. And again, as information becomes available, we'll let everyone know so that we can all plan on gathering together. So today, we begin a new series in the book of Esther. And given all that is happening around us right now, I believe it is actually quite fitting. The first chapter of Esther is a rather interesting look at a government's attempts to move the hearts and minds of its people. What I find most interesting is that the foundations of the methods that are used don't change, we'll see, whether the government is a totalitarian dictatorship like we see with Xerxes in our passage, or if it's a democracy like we see right here in the U.S. Those methods are the same. And a person's response to power when they have it has nothing to do with whether they come to power through birth or might, as Xerxes did, or if they come to power through the vote of the people. In the end, they're not that far apart. The depth and latitude of the responses may be different, but the heart of the response is very similar. The effect of wielding power can be immense on the human psyche. So let's look at our story. Our story begins in verses 1 and 2, and we read, This is what happened during the time of Xerxes the Xerxes who ruled over 120 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Now I've got a map here that I want everyone to see so you're aware of just how big this was. Xerxes was ruler over the Persian Median Empire and was at the time perhaps the most powerful man in the world. His empire encompasses 127 different provinces, that stretched from modern day Pakistan and India all the way on the eastern edge of our map shown to modern day Sudan on the west. It's important for us to understand the very real power that Xerxes held and the extent to which he wielded that power and that these provinces were made up of all kinds of different people groups of many different languages. And he was able somehow to bring all of this together As one massive force, that only one nation would ever successfully stand against. And then in the next verse we read, And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. So we know historically that in the third year of Xerxes' reign, he calls a war council, the purpose of this council was to convince all of these disparate groups that Xerxes ruled over to voluntarily support his, his desire to conquer Greece. And so Xerxes is going to try to win all these men over to his side. And so during this council, he's going to put on display all of his power and might so that they would feel comfortable entrusting trusting him with the lives of their men to serve as his army. And it appears that Xerxes holds to the universal dictator's maximum of go big or go home. And in verse four, we read, for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. He is going to hold nothing back. This is a massive party, right? That goes on for six whole months. This was a war council, but there was just as much if not more partying going on than counseling. You see, the Persians believe that the best negotiating was done when all parties involved were just a little bit tipsy. And Xerxes wants so desperately to avenge his father, who failed to conquer Greece, that he is going to hold nothing back in gathering the support of those around him. And so this war council lasts for a whole six months. We know historically that Xerxes is going to go to war, And he is going to attempt to conquer Greece. And we also know historically that Xerxes is going to suffer a resounding defeat at the hands of the Greeks. And that ultimately, Alexander the Great will come to power in Rome. And he will ultimately conquer the Persian Empire. And Xerxes is going to display all of his wealth because wealth during this time was acquired through power. And he wanted these people to see him. As the most powerful man in the world, now at this time, Persia was far wealthier than Greece. And we know that Alexander the Great, when he finally conquered Persia, was absolutely astounded by the amount of wealth that the kingdom held. And Alexander the Great was a wealthy man. What this shows us is that regardless of all the wealth and power one holds, they do not hold the amount or level of power they typically perceive they ultimately hold. The Lord God of the heavens, in His infinite power, would ultimately bring the Persian Empire to an end, regardless of its wealth and its power. Now back to our story. So, what do you do after throwing a six-month-long war council, or banquet, or party? You draw it all to close by throwing the most lavish, amazing party anyone has ever seen, right? I know. They just had essentially a six-month-long party of sorts. This is the after party, I guess. So let's look at this party in verses five through eight, because it's important to see just how far Xerxes is going to go to convince these men to support him. We read, when these days were over, and so the 180-day war council has come to an end, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, Fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars, there were couches of gold and silver, couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother-of-pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the kin. King's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man whatever he wished. Now, most people would have been thoroughly impressed by the six-month-long war council. But hey, if you stuck around until the end, right? as long as you showed just how much you supported Xerxes and stayed for the whole thing, then and only then, Did he really reward you with the truly good stuff? He had been putting everything out there to impress these dignitaries, but now he's going to pull out all the stops. He's not holding back anything to win the opportunity to go to war with Greece. All for the opportunity to avenge his father's inability. How does that sound? How strange does that sound to you? Really? Sounds pretty petty, doesn't it? And that was what was really happening here. Xerxes, the most powerful man in the world at the time, spends vast amounts of money to convince men, whom he ruled already, that they should follow his leadership and his power. Hmm. I have to say, it's not a very convincing position of power, is it? Our author is making some very interesting and insightful pokes at the connection between wealth and power, and in particular Xerxes. There are many wealthy leaders today, even, who spend vast amounts of their wealth to convince others that they are leadership material, that they're thought leaders, that people need to look to them for wisdom and insight. For instance, I recently had an advertised post on Facebook come across my feed from a gentleman that has a weekly leadership show and how he was a thought leader in his industry. So I bit, and I clicked on his profile to check him out here's where the rubber meets the road, right? He might have had a lot of insight on leadership, but I have no idea. Because when I saw that Living Way Church has more people who follow our page than he does, I was basically done. Look, we may love our little church, but we are not thought leaders in any church movement, right? This man doesn't really exercise any power, does he? He has fewer followers than we do. What he has is a decent amount of money or wealth that he can throw at some very nice live streaming equipment. But does that really tell us how much this man knows about leadership? Truth is, this man may have amazing insights into leadership. This is because there's been this shift, right? I didn't pay attention. I didn't look to see how much he knew because there has been this shift in the world economy that most of us don't even recognize, but we respond to it. And that is social platform followers we have a tendency to judge success and power today not only by monetary wealth but today we look at the number of followers an individual or company or social media influencer may have and the world today spends that number facebook and youtube recognize this and when a social media account gets to a certain number that becomes a marketable asset for these companies i recently watched a youtube video produced by a christian organization Touting the number of Instagram followers a pastor had as proof that we should all be trying to figure out what that pastor is doing right. Now, I'm not saying he was doing anything right or wrong, right? I'm not saying that these platforms are evil, even. Don't get me wrong. At their base, these companies, these platforms are intended, they intended for their platforms to be neutral, but they're not. And we need to recognize that. And we should, I believe, Try to benefit as much as possible from these platforms while all the time recognizing they are not neutral. And we will see that connection later in our story even after Esther has been introduced, right? How do we interact with that? But we do need to be careful how we approach and utilize and be careful so as not to idolize these platforms or number of followers. We need to be careful so as to not perceive that we are something we are not as Xerxes is about to do or that we exercise or possess power that is not ours to possess. Hey, look, our king isn't the only one who gets to throw a party, though, right? The queen does as well. And we read in verse 9 that she throws her own party for the women who were present at this after party, so to speak. And this is where our story really begins to get interesting. In verses 10 and 11, we read, On the seventh day, so the final day of this big party, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaraktha, Zethar, and Karkas, why we have their names, I don't know, to bring him before him the queen wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. And so Xerxes is in high spirits. That's simply a pleasant way of saying he was drunk. He makes this big deal out of bringing the queen before all of these drunk men. And so he sends not one, but seven servants to fetch her. That's how awesome his power is. He, the king, is so powerful over the queen that he needs seven servants to go and tell her to come before him. And his drunk bunnies. So that he can show off his trophy wife. I know, that sounds revolting the way I put it, right? But that is exactly what is going on here. That is exactly what is happening. And we should be revolted by this gross negligence of this man's exercise of power over his wife. However, our queen, Queen Vashti, isn't so keen on this request. And in verse 10, she refuses to abide by her king's wishes. Of course, in front of the king's many admirers, he sees this like a slap in the face. And so he becomes furious. I find the next two verses so odd. We read in verses 13 and 14. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Again, we get their names. Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marcina, and Memekum. The seven nobles of Persian media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. What matter of law and justice is being broken here? except perhaps the law and justice of our almighty king's ego. Our king is so caught up in what he perceives as an outright affront to his supreme strength and power that he calls for these seven nobles to help him deal with his wife. What? How weird is this? His wife says no, and instead of speaking to her, he calls on the supreme court of the land which is yet again another attempt on his part to exercise and show off his power, right? He thinks he is showing how powerful he truly is, so he calls these great men of wisdom to serve him in this matter. There was a much easier and simpler way to handle this thing, as a husband and as a wife. But our king Xerxes is in the power mindset, and so he must impress his guests. But how impressive is this really? In verse 15 we read, According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? The king asks. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. He calls himself King Xerxes, like they didn't know he was. The law of the land, the supreme power of the king, must be obeyed, right? And so what is to be done now? My wife told me now. What am I to do? Really? The Supreme Court is going to now show just how wise and how powerful they are. We read in verses 16 through 19, it's a long section, but I want to read it because it's funny, I think. Then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of all the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Sorry, I couldn't help but act that out because I think it's so funny. Oh my goodness, the queen has done such a great disservice to us all by not parading before us her amazing beauty that we might gaze upon her. And then his biggest concern is that This thing might get out there, and oh my, then all the women of the land might start telling their husbands, No, we can't have that. So strip the queen of her crown and find a new one. I mean, that's what any sane husband would do, right? Wife says, No, get a new one. This is just crazy. Oh, and listen, king, if we make an example of her and make a new law, they write a royal decree, then that all the women of the land. We'll have to respect their husbands. Absolute power appears to create absolute delusion at times. And then finally, in the last two verses, we read, the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Mimican had proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. How much work did that take? Such relief, though, for all the men of the land. They are so afraid that this might get out and become public and that women all over the land might become disrespectful to their husbands and actually say no, that they make this royal decree and and send it all over the land in order to protect the respective husbands everywhere so that in the end, everyone knows exactly what happened. It's just hilarious our king xerxes our powerful powerful king xerxes announces to the world that he makes bad decisions and is completely impotent to force his wife to do his bidding as her king and the funniest part of this whole thing is that these men make this decree to show all of these women just how powerful the king and they truly are this is not simply a male problem though right but rather it's a power problem people who crave power Men or women, in order to exer- exercise it over others, will always be shown to actually have no power at all. They may lead nations and armies into battle, but in the end, they truly have no power to actually change the hearts of people. This decree will have absolutely no impact on marriages anywhere in the land, except for the kings, right? Now, we don't know really how the king felt about his wife, but if he did love his wife, his quest for her, his hope for a relationship with her is now ruined. King Xerxes has shown himself to be no different than the king in the short story, The Emperor's New Clothes, where the emperor is duped into thinking that he's wearing the most splendid and amazing clothes ever, but he's unable to see them. Why? Because they're not there, but he's convinced they are. In the end, the emperor parades around in his underwear before all the people, and all the while, his noblemen and advisors We're all going on about how beautiful his new clothes are. King Xerxes' exercise of power here is no different. Xerxes parades before the entire land just how impotent he truly is, all the while thinking that he is exercising the power of his kingship over all the people, and his noblemen and advisors celebrate his greatness. But the people would have seen something very different. How could you not see anything different? I mean, think about it. Let's put it with modern people. Can you imagine if President Trump got a bit tipsy one evening and said to Melania, come here and show these world leaders just how beautiful you are. And she is a beautiful woman. I suspect, however, that Melania, just like our queen, would refuse such a denigrating request. What if, then, in order to save face, Trump was somehow able to get our legislative branch of government to make a new law, requiring women of the land to show their husbands respect? We would all think this was a complete joke, and he was a completely powerless man. And this is exactly how the people of Persia are now going to perceive their king, because this is exactly what Xerxes does. Wait a second. This is the introduction our author uses to our story of Esther? How strange! Why does he do this? Because he is going to write a story of ultimate power over a people in need, all the while poking at humanity's attempt to struggle for that very power. See, when people are given extreme amounts of power, that tends to arise from that. What tends to arise from that is usually not very pretty. As the adage goes, Absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. And unfortunately, we are going to see that in our story. And at times, we ourselves may be on the receiving end even of someone wielding that kind of power with unfortunate results for us. We see this often in politics. Just look at the things that some of our politicians will say and the things that they particularly think of themselves. And when we see it on, and we see this not on just the left. But both sides, right? It's both the left and the right. Just look at the corruption that we've seen when they get caught. And we've seen it on both sides. And we need to be careful. This is not just right a left or right problem. Like I've said, this is not a liberal or conservative problem. This is a sinful human being problem. Because we see it everywhere, even at times within the church. The recent scandals within the Catholic Church are examples of this very thing and are saddening. And look, we in the Protestant church are not immune to the lure of power. There have been several significant powers on the Protest- pastors on the Protestant side of the church who in the last several years were forced to step down because they took their power too far and took advantage of the very people they were called to serve and shepherd. None of us are immune from this reality, and so we must always be on guard. Now, this passage touches on a wife's response to her husband. And many pastors have, I believe, inappropriately used Vashti as a negative example of a wife. A wife who would not submit to her husband. Now, it is true in the Christian home, wives are called, in Ephesians 5, to submit to their husband. But the greater responsibility, I believe, ultimately lies with the husband in order to make that submission possible. See, in Ephesians 5, verse 25, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here's the answer to the corrupting nature of power. Husbands, you need to love your wives. And just as Jesus sacrificed his life for the church, guess what? You need to do this as well every day of your life. You need to be willing to sacrifice your very life for your wife. All of your desires, all of your wants, all of your needs, all of them, sacrifice them all for your wife, if necessary. Now, they may not that may not always be necessary, but if it is necessary, then you need to do so. You don't think twice. You don't ask if it's fair or right, because those questions don't matter. If you want to be certain that you don't exercise corrupting power in your family, you must love your wife and sacrifice your life, metaphorically, daily for what is best for her. Look, Jesus didn't ask the father if it was fair that he had to die for a people who hated him. He loved us so much that he willingly gave his life that we might live. Husbands, we are called to act that same way in relation to our wives. And the truth is that when a man does that, when anyone acts that way in leadership, people willingly and want only to submit their lives to that kind of a leader. If you are in a position of authority, right, as a boss or a leader, then Ephesians 6, 9 is the answer to ensure you don't become lured by the corruption of power as well. Ephesians 6, 9 reads, masters, do the same to them, servants, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. There's no partiality with him. Look, God doesn't care what position you think you might have in this world. He is your God, and he is their God. And so you need to live your life in light of that reality. We live right now in a world that is defined by a very strange dichotomy. We, the church, are led each and every day by the king of kings, Jesus Christ. So no matter what some leader of a country says or does towards us, Jesus is and always will be king and God in his sovereignty has allowed that individually individual to take that place of leadership for some reason no different than he allowed Xerxes to come to rule or Darius before him and Darius used was used by God as a foreign oppressor of Israel to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and God as we are going to see in our story is going to use this fickle weak king Xerxes for his pleasure and as a means to his end the difficulty for us is that for now Jesus rules and reigns in the heavens. We await patiently and longingly for his return when all things will come to know their place under his rule. Until then, however, the scriptures say that he allows the prince of the air to rule this world. This is Satan. And so we will have to learn to deal with evil. What is important, and I'm not sure all of our actors always get it right in our story here, is how do we do that well? How do we live our lives in a way that is honoring to Jesus in the midst of this fallen, broken world that is led by fallen and broken people? As we continue our story, we will gain a greater understanding of these answers. And I hope that our hearts are changed by what we read Jesus doing here. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we as your church come before you, your people, and pray that you would touch our hearts. That you would help us to be lights, that you would help us to be beacons of light in this dark world. Help us that we might be led by you, our invisible God, unseen by this world at times and by us. Help us to lean on you, knowing that in times of uncertainty, you are always there. You are always supreme. You are always almighty. You are always sovereign. Father God, help us to see these truths through the story of Esther's life. Help us, Lord Jesus, that we might know you and know you well. Amen.